Hello from Education International in Brussels. This is Ed Voices, a podcast of global education news and advocacy. EI is more than 400 teacher and educator unions and professional associations in 173 countries, representing 32 million members. Here's your host. Hello and welcome to a new Ed Voices podcast. I am Jennifer Ulrich. I'm a program officer at Education International. And today we're going to have a chat about education, copyright and knowledge sharing to mark the World Intellectual Property Day. According to the World Intellectual Property Organization, WIPO, this is a day to learn about the role that intellectual property rights play in encouraging innovation and creativity. But we're going to have a chat about that today. I'm going to welcome two guests. First, Maguena Marulecki, and second, Dr. Michael Geist to this conversation. Maguena is the General Secretary of the South African Democratic Teachers Union, SATU, as well as EI Vice President. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you. Um, Michael is a law professor at the University of Ottawa, where he holds the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law and is a member of the Centre for Law, Technology and Society. Thank you also for being here with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Welcome to Ed Voices. So World Intellectual Property Day means different things for different people. From an educational perspective, we believe that the public good is best served by making scholarly work and educational materials widely accessible. The EI Congress last year adopted a resolution on strengthening equitable access to teaching, learning and research materials. EI believes that equitable and open access to educational resources is absolutely crucial in order to ensure the right to education and to achieve Sustainable Development Goal 4. Unfortunately, too often paywalls and strict copyright laws prevent teachers from accessing information or from sharing it with their students and other teachers. Researchers need to abide by rules that vary from country to country, while research is becoming increasingly global. With the COVID-19 crisis, the importance of open educational resources has become particularly apparent. As schools are closed all around the world, students, teachers and researchers need open access to resources in order to be able to continue their learning, teaching and research. We're going to get straight into the topic and I'm going to ask our guests a bit about their experiences and the work that they do around copyright and open educational resources. First off, Maguena, could you probably, could you briefly outline to me the work Sadhu has been doing on copyright recently, in particular in relation to the South African Copyright Amendment Bill? Shinifa, let me thank you so much um, for having this conversation about this very, very important uh, topic that uh, we have been on it for some time. And the South African context, we're still having the 41-year-old apartheid copyright law, which the government um, has uh, tried to amend with an, uh, a bill, uh, must indicate that the bill was passed by the parliament and the other house of parliament, which we call the National Council for Provinces, in May 2019. However, since that time, the president has been freezing or shelving 
the signing of this particular copyright bill is the copyright bill that would have given us access to education by incorporating the most important principles of copyright, that is fair use, as well as the exceptions that were included in the copyright. We are told by the writers that even before they did this, have been in conversation with the United States trade representative, uh, trying to brief them around the fact that they are modeling the copyright bill of South Africa to the international standard, but in particular, the United States, which has the, uh, the exceptions and the fair, uh, fair use uh, clauses uh, in, in, in their use. So we quickly, as I, the demands that we've been making is that we have been uh, lobbying the president to sign the bill. However, the president has been under pressure by this U.S. trade representative who had been blackmailing the government, threatening the government with sanctions, but also saying the government is going to lose about 32 billion uh, US dollars because of the preferential trade for uh, developing economies, but also our country as being part of the countries of Africa that are benefiting from the preferential trade with the United States. We have then organized ourselves as a consortium of librarians, the universities, the students at the tertiary level, as well as uh, the high school levels, artists, uh, performers, Blind South Africa, Recreate, and a number of people who have an interest in this, including one of our organizations that fought for the antiretroviral drugs to be given to the people, which is Treatment Action Campaign, a very, very important partner and an alliance in, in lobbying the government to do the right thing. So on the 13th of January, we then wrote to the president and say, President, in your State of the Nation address, can you tell the nation why are you not signing? Is there any constitutional problem around signing the bill? The president did not do that. As the president was addressing the nation, he didn't say that. We wrote a letter as a consortium in South Africa on the 30th of January, again urging the president not to really bow down to any pressure and pander into any other pressure from any sovereign government or any sovereign interest group because this was going to benefit the country and benefiting the world because if South Africa's economy is going to be inclusive and growing because there's innovation, there's creativity, because people have access to resources that encourage them to begin to be writers, to begin to be artists and so forth, because they have the knowledge, they have got access to support, then it is going to help inclusive economic growth in our country. So the president did not respond to that. On the 24th of February, we then staged a picket, the embassy of the United States, where we presented a memorandum to then say to the embassy and the ambassador to dissociate themselves from this lobby group of the U.S. trade uh, representative who were blackmailing, who were threatening and uh, bullying the government in terms of its sovereignty. So that's where we are. Our demand is very simple, is that we demand the president to sign this bill because the bill uh, is having no constitutional problem and the bill is not going to kill any industry. In actual fact, the bill, if it is signed, will have to encourage more access and we believe that the textbook industry will grow because teachers and any other person will do research, they will start writing and therefore it will then promote 
equity, but also promote inclusive economic growth in a country that has got so huge inequalities and the students will also be able to bend. Those are our demands. Thank you, Megwena, for explaining a bit about the demands that you're putting forward as SATU, but also with other actors as a, as a consortium. It's really interesting to hear. I'm going to turn now to Michael, and I'd like to ask a bit about the copyright situation in Canada. And more specifically, what is Canada's flexible fair dealing? And what does this mean for educators and for researchers too? Thanks. Yeah, sure. So so thanks for that. And I have to say that Magwena's description of the situation in South Africa resonates from a Canadian perspective as well. We've been involved in copyright reform and copyright related issues for at least a couple of decades now. And pressure from the United States and some of the lobby groups that in effect it's representing have been a very consistent theme. If we look at the current situation in Canada, it's fairly good from an educational perspective. And that's the result really of two things. One, our Supreme Court, the Supreme Court of Canada, has issued over the past decade a whole series of copyright related decisions in which is described fair dealing, which would be the Canadian equivalent of fair use. They're quite they're quite similar as the core limitation and exception to copyright. They've ruled that fair dealing is a user's right. And that when interpreting copyright law, it's, an, it's essential to interpret it in a balanced fashion, both creator rights on the one hand, user rights on the other. And so our courts have been really helpful in that regard. At the same time, our court has been our government rather has been examining copyright law. And the biggest change we saw was back in 2012. And while we don't have full flexible fair dealing right now, I can describe what that is in a moment. If you like, we've got a whole series of different uh, purposes that qualify for fair dealing and research and private study are among them. In 2012, we added uh, education as well. So it's pretty broad from an educational perspective. There's been a great deal of pressure in the intervening years from publishers, copyright collectives, U.S. government and others to scale back or roll back some of those exceptions or the approach that we've taken on fair dealing. But what the government did last year in 2019 was conduct an extensive review of the copyright law. It was mandated in the law that there needed to be a review. And the outcome of that review from the lead committee was that they did not call for changes to fair dealing. They did. In fact, if anything, they argued for the flexible fair dealing, the more open approach with respect to fair dealing. So generally speaking, it's a ongoing battle uh, in terms of ensuring that the government maintains uh, a consistent view about the importance of education, the importance of balanced access, of fair access. But we've got a pretty good situation, at least as it's unfolded over the last decade or so. Thanks, Michael, for that explanation. I want to go on now to ask you both a bit more about the current situation. And of course, at the moment, we're recording this podcast during an unprecedented um, crisis, a health crisis, an education crisis, and an economic crisis. And um, how do you think the situation of copyright um, is affected? And uh, what is the situation of copyright at the moment in the context of the COVID-19 crisis? In the context of the COVID-19, um, we have seen that pre-existing conditions that have always been a barrier to learning have been exposed. Then there's an appreciation 
of the fact that students at home need to be on a distance education. Students at home have got to do e-learning, they've got to do online learning, and therefore they have got to have access to learning materials. But because of these inequalities that have always been pre-existing and uh, having been now being exposed to everyone, we are beginning to realize the need and the pressure that needs to be put on government to really go back and say to the president, President, you are violating the constitution of the republic by putting a bill that has been passed by parliament and another house of parliament and you're not signing it because now we can see that the majority of our teachers because of the copyright restrictions and so forth are not able to access this information online. They are not able to assist our students during their distance learning and so forth. So um, it is a reality that um, the uh, South African public has come to realize the importance of our struggles and, and our demands that we have been putting to say there must be equity, there must be access, and only access alone is not going to be helpful because we needed to ensure that people have got the knowledge and they are activists on their own rights to ensure that they are able to assist their students at home. Now, with COVID-19, even if the, the learner or the students has been given information by the teacher to work at home, the parents, because of this inequality, the parents are not able to access that information and therefore they are unable to then help the students to learn at home. So it is both you know, affecting the, the, uh, the balance in terms of those who have will then have access to that information because parents can be able to buy the textbooks, they can be able to buy other learning materials that, of course, are also protected by the copyright. And the majority of those who do not have anything are really waiting for the lifting of the, the lockdown to go back to school. So you're going to sit with a situation where a teacher in a classroom has learners or students who have been doing something at home, which will be about 3%, and then having to sit with about 97% of the students who literally during a period of a month or two months or three months, depending on how long the lockdown is going to go on, having not had any opportunity or any chance of having access to that. We have seen during this lockdown that one of our municipalities in the country then launched what they call e-library. And again, in the e-library, you realize that the books that are being uploaded there are not the books that can assist the teachers. Uh, they are not the books that can assist the students, even if they are accessed for free, because those that are supposed to be accessed and be helping the students are not uploaded there because of the... Uh, the, the restriction and because of the law that we need to abide by and so forth. So I can say that whilst we knew the pre-existing conditions of the structural problem of our apartheid, but COVID has now exposed that to the bear and everybody now appreciate the importance of knowledge, the importance of education, the importance of research and the importance of ensuring that uh, we access not only uh, the books, but also plays, dramas, and everything, and videos to help our students, but we don't have that right now. Thanks, Megwana, for explaining the situation at the moment um, in South Africa. I want to ask uh, Michael the same question about 
um, the context of COVID-19 and copyright, but to ask you to um, to reflect on what's happening at the global level. Right. Yeah, no, and I think those, some of the points we just heard are really good ones. I think it has highlighted the urgency that on a number of copyright issues and copyright related issues that our communities have been focused on for some time. I also do a regular podcast and, and amongst the episodes that I focused on recently have been open access. And uh, early on, a lot of the concern was that research related to COVID-19 was oftentimes behind paywalls and not readily available. And at a time of a pandemic, when you're des when you desperately need to ensure that scientists have access to the latest research, the notion that that information and that latest research would be inaccessible is enormously problematic. And of course, that's what we've been arguing for a very long time. Some of the publishers stepped up and with respect specifically to this kind of research, they opened that up. But I think many would say that, that this just highlights why we need open access models with respect to scholarly publishing so that it's more broadly available. There's a similar situation with respect to open educational resources for exactly the reasons we just heard. And so if you are reliant on materials that uh, are locked down, that are restricted either through digital rights management, technologies that limit use, or that copyright law says can't be used in flexible ways within education, you sometimes can find yourselves un self un able to access the materials you need for your students. And so for that reason, greater emphasis on trying to create and invest in open educational resources that are fully flexible and can be used in these different ways becomes essential. And we are seeing some interesting, albeit sometimes controversial responses. And so I also did a podcast with the Internet Archive, well-known uh, U.S.-based organization that is involved uh, in both the Wayback Machine, in archiving the World Wide Web, but has also digitized millions of books. It's established a national emergency library to take those digitized books that previously were limited in terms of access on a one-to-one -one basis. You could have one digital copy for every physical copy the library had. And they said that there were teachers that literally on a Friday had access to books that on Monday they didn't because suddenly they were in a lockdown situation. And so they said, we're going to remove the wait list because we've got teachers and students that need that immediate access. Now, I think that I think there's a there's an argument there and they've been trying to make the argument that U.S. fair use would permit this sort of activity. But to bring it back to the copyright issue we've been discussing, unsurprisingly, we've got publishers that that don't agree. They argue that this is theft, that you can't use it in this way. And so I think, one, it highlights how even as the U.S. goes around and pressures countries like South Africa and others on these issues, many there are relying on exactly the kinds of changes that countries like South Africa are seeking so that their teachers and students can have the same kind of access that that many in the U.S. are trying to establish. And so the hypocrisy there, I think, is, is, is self-evident. Uh, and beyond that, it highlights that in these emergency situations, I think it really does crystallize why we need balanced copyright, why we need some of that flexibility. Of course, we need it during a pandemic or an emergency situation. But in other situations as well, those restrictions of access have real impacts and on the quality of education for our students, on the quality of research and on society as a whole. And that's why I think those who have been advocating so strongly for a balanced approach 
continue to do so now, but it will resonate, I think, even more with people as they better understand why these issues are so important. Thanks, Michael. Yes, I found it interesting that some publishers have enabled certain educational resources to be available or research to be available, but just for a very short period of time. So you have publishers trying to look good in the public eye by providing resources for free, but then this will only be for the next few months. So it shows the need for a a more long-lasting change, right? Exactly. Um, And maybe, Michael, I will go directly again to you to ask a bit more than about the recent policy brief that you wrote for EI, which was about education, copyright, but also e-commerce, and it touched on privacy issues. Um, Can you explain a bit about, you know, what what you found writing this policy brief and how it's also related to the COVID-19 crisis? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. And it was a fun project to become involved with. And and it highlights how we often focus on domestic situations like we're doing now, what's happening in Canada, what's happening in South Africa. But the policy development and the rules that we ultimately face around some of these issues happen in a number of different fora. And sometimes they're sort of out of the public eye a little bit and we're not paying enough attention. And so this policy brief really emphasized the work that's taking place at the World Trade Organization, the W. As well as within regional trade or regional trade deals uh, such as NAFTA in Canada uh, or the the CPTPP or RCEP. There's a whole range of of acronyms for these various trade deals that are taking place on a regional basis. And what you find in those agreements or in those discussions, which are often being conducted outside the public eye, is that some of the issues at stake have direct implications for education, particularly around things like electronic commerce, e-commerce, as well as copyright. And so as we looked at what's taking place, for example, at the WTO as part of their e-commerce program, we found that some of the proposals that we're seeing have direct implications for what copyright policy would look like. They've got major implications from a privacy perspective. And as we see education more and more move online using large platforms, the the privacy implications of our students and our teachers, but particularly for younger students who oftentimes are not given a choice with respect to the information that can be collected. And to think that uh, that information may move across borders, be stored in different jurisdictions, that these trade policy rules may mandate that countries can't even stop that or establish rules to provide some safeguards or protections around some of that activity taking place, I think is quite troubling. And so the goal of the policy brief was in a sense a bit of a wake-up call. It was an attempt to say these activities are happening right now. These talks are happening, whether at the WTO or potentially in your country as part of regional trade discussions. It's important for our community to become more actively engaged as part of those discussions, because if you're not at the table, if you're not there to participate, then your voice obviously isn't going to be heard. Maybe asking then, Magwena, can you tell us a bit more? Uh, Michael has told us what's happening almost behind closed doors, but what are the implications already that we are seeing? What, what challenges are faced by educators in South Africa as a result of these, these deals and these discussions at the global level? 
Thanks, Dr. Geneva, and thanks to Michael, uh, really, for making it even more simpler for a person like me who is just an educator, not a, <laughs> a person who is in the copyright laws and, and so forth. The, the challenges that our teachers and um, researchers are facing um, in South Africa, as we have said at the beginning, is, the, is, is, is access to, to that information. However, not only access, but the possibility for them to be paying hefty fines for having been uh, copying or using this material uh, that is um, uh, copyrighted uh, because there's no flexibility and there is no no, no exceptions uh, in terms of what the new bill seeks to, to establish and so forth. But the other problem is really the South African uh, you know country in terms of books is the most expensive. So it's better for you to travel to London to go and buy a book. So there's a time when the South African teachers would not have a book that they really so need, so essential that they need that particular book and it's not available and therefore uh, it is also unaffordable. And the, and the bill sought to really address that kind of a situation where, where there is an essential kind of a learning material that is not accessible, that is not available anywhere, uh, the school should be assisted to do that. So they are being confronted by that. They are also confronted clearly by the fact that it's not only books that they use. They use plays, they use videos from, um, you know, broadcasting. It's quite expensive for the teachers and the school to really go to a public broadcaster and say, we would want to use this portion of your drama or this portion of the play to teach drama in our schools or to teach music in our schools and so forth. So the schools are saying it is really inaccessible uh, because of the price that are being put there. If after, beyond the issue of the price is the time that it takes, the turnaround for the request for you to really get something from the owners of these particular recorded materials that's supposed to be used by the schools. It may take a, a month, and clearly it is that in that time, the necessity for that particular material has already expired. So these are some of the challenges that our teachers are facing. And to avoid the schools being sued uh, by publishers, they end up really not uh, doing anything except to really use material that might have been obsolete and not being able to really help them with the emergencies that uh, are appearing now. And with this emergency now that we see and this pandemic, it is that really the inequalities have been so much exposed and, and the teachers are going to have it very difficult now to be able to access because the, once the bookshops have been closed, have locked down, so there will be no publishing. And already, we have already started seeing in January and February where the, the bookshelves have been cleaned. There was nothing. And then we were waiting for the books to be printed and then so that the students can have those, the, the books by March and April. And with this means we're going to have to expone, to, expose, to postpone, let me put it, to postpone everything because now with the lockdown, Clearly, this has nothing has been printed and so forth. So those are some of the challenges that we're seated with and so forth. Just a small piece of work that you'd want to use. It takes so much time and so much money that is paid by the universities or the schools to really access that piece of information. And that's why 
we have got to advocate clearly for open access models like Michael has said in terms of publishing and we have got to really urge the communities to be activists to support uh, the call for knowledge to be accessible uh, to everyone. Thanks, Maguena. It really is quite a shocking picture that you have given us of the reality on the ground and it shows the urgent need for change. Um, It kind of brings me to my final question of this podcast, which is to ask both of you what you would like to see in the future and what do you think the future of intellectual property and copyright is um, when it comes to education and research? How is um, the role of education research unions in this context and what is your vision for for a better future? Right. Thanks for that. And I think we've touched already on a few of the kinds of things that we need that I'd like to see happen. The, the embracing of open access and open educational resources as, as examples. You know, it's hard during the current time to look forward to look to that better future because we're in such a state of uncertainty that I think is going to be with us for some time. But if we take a more optimistic approach, I think this really is highlighting for many people the the why we're in a situation where there are real problems today, where indeed some of the policies just don't make sense given the kinds of broader policy priorities that we have as societies. I mean, we recognize, of course, how important education and access to knowledge is. And yet for too long, we've had policies that haven't reflected that. They've largely reflected the, you know, a small group of very powerful lobby groups that have oftentimes argued against trying to ensure that there is appropriate levels of access. And I don't think education groups, much less any other civil society groups, are arguing for a free-for-all. It's not that. We recognize the need for fair compensation. But fairness when it comes to copyright really has to go both ways. And so the approaches that recognize, I think, users' rights as being equivalent in balance to creator rights is really where that starting point is. I think Canada, you know, I'm proud to say I think got it right and continues to get it right in framing this issue, not as limitations and exceptions, which basically suggests that somehow I'm getting an exception to the general rule if I seek to ensure that there's access for this research purpose or this study purposes or the other kinds of purposes that are there, but rather recognize that we are an equal partner in effect when it comes to copyright, one in which there are creator rights to ensure that there's appropriate levels of of compensation and rights for authors to be sure But at the same time, users' rights mean that for educators, for teachers, for libraries, for the public as a whole, our rights to use materials, to engage in repurposing of materials, to build on prior knowledge are rights as well. And we need copyright laws that better reflect that. I fully agree that in the vision, as uh, as explained by Marco, is what we should be looking at uh, at the end of the day. It is that um, and nobody, um, uh, even our Education International and SATU, we are not arguing um, for a situation where we are saying do not recognize the creators, the performers and those people. You are saying you need a very balanced approach in any copyright um, act where those who are creating must be encouraged to create and be creative and continue to do so. Uh, but at the same time, they need to also have to have access to resources for them to really innovate and be creative at the same time. And therefore, they need to be compensated for that. And therefore, so for a fair compensation, 
is a principle that I think any future copyright transformation or reform must look at that at the end of the day. Because access to education basically would help everybody because when you have people who have access to material for education and research, then you're encouraging more creativity. So we, we, we may see the improvement in terms of economic growth because more people are participating and they're creating and therefore they're compensated. In our country, we, 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 we have a vision that says those who have been publishing and been writing have not benefited from their work. It takes so much time for them to really own the work that they did because it's owned by somebody else. And therefore, we're saying that can't be fair because it would mean those who are creators and those who are owners of this particular work do not benefit. And we are saying the balance must be there. The collectors in our country, that's our vision. They need to really come to the table and agree that they have done an injustice to the people who are writing, to the people who are creating, and to the artists in our countries and educators because they have not been allowing them to benefit from the work that they are doing. And it is because of this draconic and uh, apartheid colonial law that they are resisting to change. And we are saying this has, has to change now so that everyone is able to benefit from fair use, uh, from exceptions and, and limitations of any copyright. We want WIPO to really transform and be able to be the driving force to ensure that those particular countries that are still clamoring to the colonial um, uh, uh, copyright must change. Um, I must indicate that I was really shocked when I was in Kenya, where we were really advocating for this, that you have got countries that are really uh, wanting to really die with the colonial uh, copyright laws that are not helping them uh, at the end of the day and are not improving uh, innovation, are not improving scientific knowledge in the country and, and creativity, but they would want to die and have them rather than to really say, look, the world has moved on. Let's look at what the other world, the other people are doing. So that is the vision that we would want to really advocate for, to say, let's transform our copyright. Let's have this balanced approach. So thank you, both of you, for being here with us today for Ed Voices. I think the conversation we've had has been really relevant um, in the current context. And you've both laid out a lot of challenges, but... You've also laid out a, a powerful and important vision for the future, um, a future where we have a fair and balanced um, copyright laws. And I thank you both for, for giving us your time, for having a chat with us today. And I hope that you both stay safe. And thank you, listeners, for, for being with us here today as well. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Geneva, and thanks for Mark for, for more information that I, I feel educated now. <laughs> to get the latest global education news and advocacy, subscribe to Ed Voices on your favorite podcast app or anytime on SoundCloud. And as always, tell a friend, spread the word, and please give us a review on iTunes. Mm-hmm.